0: S-P-U-L-L-E-N at fairwaymc.com and that phone number is 520-977-7904 shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address you are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice would you really want to tell a court a law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea Really? Clown hats my face. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to The China Shop. Joining me today is the decorous and dapper Derek Azul, the Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager for Shelton Funds. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest, you can visit sheltonfunds.com to learn more about Derek and the funds that he manages. And if you'd like to reach out with any suggestions, corrections, or questions for future guests, you can do that via email at twobullsatfinancialineptitude.com. Or you can join our free Discord server, where all the cool kids gather to share our joys and miseries with other like-minded market aficionados. We'll have all those links in the episode description, so you can peruse them at your convenience. Now that we got all the business end out of the way, let's meet today's guest. How are you doing today, Derek?
1: Uh, I'm doing great, Kyle. Um, thanks for inviting me on in the show. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, how'd you get
0: involved in the markets? Like, where did your journey start?
1: Wow. Um, well, I was. Uh, where did it start? You know. My original background in college and all that was um, in computer science. I was a software engineer out of college. I saw that. And, yeah, I did a lot of you know, different types of programming, database programming, all sorts of interesting stuff. But I um, but always liked investing. I mean, my father got it into me got me into it when I was a young age. And I always thought that there was this um, combination. This may seem obvious now, but this was some years ago. <laughs> right, it was right. a combination of a technology marriage of technology investing could really provide value for investors and in figuring out, you know, how do you generate returns and how do you build portfolios? And so um, that's how I really got into it. I, I went, then I went to grad school and I was, um, you know, I got, I got a couple of um, big breaks. I've gotten mm-hmm. a couple of big breaks in my career. And the first one was when I finished grad school, I got hired by a firm called GT global, which is now um, part of Invesco. Invesco bought it. This is some years ago. Um, and also by a portfolio manager who who coincidentally was also named Derek, so that caused a lot of great confusion (laughs) in the office because it's not a common name, so it's always like, you know, which Derek do they want? Usually they wanted him, not me. I always
0: thought my name was pretty uh, uncommon, but then I started meeting Kyles everywhere, and it's always confusing.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Anyways, uh, the other Derek, this other Derek, had developed this this particularly effective momentum strategy. Uh, um, His name was Derek Webb, and he needed someone to sort of build the pipes to to automate it, to be able to leverage a strategy, kind of expand its capabilities. And so, um, so we brought that in and we ran it in a bunch of a whole bunch of different strategies. We ran global equity, we ran Canadian equity, we ran um, some sector funds for like um, hmm. natural resources, consumer products, and the momentum strategy worked. And so um, uh, that you know that we did that for a couple of years, and then I got what would was sort of my second break, um, which you just never know it at the time, is right. that um, the other Derek um, decided to leave Invesco, leave the firm and start his own firm. And he wanted to take me with him. But Invesco sued him. And in all the like legal morass, right. couldn't, I was sort of untouchable. He couldn't go pull another employee. Would just Even though you, you know, maybe it was OK, he would have gotten just more legal bills to do that. Right, right, so the break was that Invesco didn't really hold any of this against me, um, and gave me the funds we were managing, and allowed me to become the portfolio manager. Sounds Probably, kind of like they didn't want to lose you. It, yeah, it was, and it was a bit ahead of the time, and and um, and so I got that big break and got this opportunity, I got to build my own team and and build that out, and um, and you know that's kind of where things went from there, and, and so. I've been a, um, I have most of the strategies that I've managed, or almost all of them have been, have been primarily quantitatively um, founded, they ba- quantitatively mm-hmm. based and really try to build portfolios, you know, using all sorts of different mathematical and statistical methods um, and building portfolios with a real eye on um, making sure that the client gets the appropriate level of returns as well as risk. And with that, you know, Balancing those out correctly are the best way to get yourself uh, consistent returns over time.
0: When you say using, um, like, basically, like you're using your computer background to try to, I guess, automate some of these processes, are they automated or are you just using the math to try to, like, build models to really understand, like, how you want your portfolio to work?
1: Well, it's both of those. I mean, you're using the math and everything to develop the models mm-hmm. and then uh, using, you know, the computer science background than to automate them. So it's the developing tools, developing um, methods to try and analyze the market. And once you get to a point where, okay, we want to do this on a daily basis for our our strategy. Yeah. Then it's like, okay, let's code this up and automate it. and, And it runs, you know, without us even thinking about it with sort of just a bit of oversight. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's a little bit of both of that in there.
0: How often are you having to go and like tweak those? those routines or those algorithms that are, that are doing the, uh, the portfolio managing or when you like cut them loose, like you said, there's a little bit of oversight, but like, I think a lot of people think that when you write like a trading bot, you just let it go and then you come back once a month and collect the paycheck. But I I think (laughs) there's probably a lot more nuance than that.
1: Well, that's the dream, right? Yeah. Go play golf.
0: Right. Exactly. Uh, (laughs)
1: that's, That's not, that's not the reality though. I mean, Yes, it it is. um, There's an art, and there's an art part of this, and the the science part of it. And so we were just talking about the science part. The art part is is understanding, like looking at the data and what it really represents. I mean, we're not really using any. We're doing things that lots of other managers or more traditional types of managers do. We're just trying to leverage the power of technology to make them better and more efficient and more and be able to apply them on a broader basis. But you have to. You have to have a feel for what's coming out of the data, how it's working its way through your system, what it represents, and and watch over it to see when you see something that just doesn't look right, um, right. or isn't what you intended, and then making some adjustments there to reflect that opinion. And, and that's an important part of it because, um, yes, there are lots of guys out there who have built what might be termed black box strategies, and a lot of work really, really well. hmm but um, that's not really what our methods have been. It's it's more glass box. There's stuff going on in there, but we're keeping an eye on it. And we also want to be able to at least you know, try and share the basics of how it's working with our clients, because then they're going to feel more confident in what we're doing. Right, right.
0: Well, uh, so let's talk a little bit about the funds that you manage then, because um, you're really big, it looks like, in the emerging markets uh, uh, arena, I guess you could say. Like, Have you always been interested in the emerging markets themselves, or is that just something that you kind of naturally gravitated to, or you just found a fit there?
1: Well, there is kind of a fit there. Um, I guess one of the other fortunate things about my time way back when as Invesco is that we, we and then I was running, um, our main strategy ultimately was a global equity fund. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, and then managed that for 10 years or so, and because of that, so we had a background in investing in all of different parts of the world and developed emerging U.S., non-U.S., et cetera, you know, large cap, small cap, the whole thing. And that was a really great way to start a career because then I could, in theory, apply these tools and strategies into these different subsectors of that market. Mm, And and emerging markets was always great because in emerging markets, um, it's one of those areas where active managers can really have an advantage. Um, It is not as well followed um, the data is le- sparse and a little less um, needs, needs requires a little massaging to pr- um, to get into a state where it's really helpful and useful. Mm-hmm. And because of all those kind of hurdles, um, active managers can add value, and active managers have a much better chance of, of beating the benchmarks that we compete against. So, um, so it's one of those spaces, and you know, small caps are another one that I really like, where I do think that there's a big um, opportunity. And so um, I was given this opportunity to run this fund here at Shelton, and uh, and jumped right at it.
0: The the lower liquidity in the emerging markets and especially small caps, like does that lead to more variance uh, when you're executing your strategies? Like, do you have to be able to put on or or accept more risk than like something that maybe has a lot higher traded volume, like mega caps or uh, ETFs?
1: Um, well, yes, and yes, I think that's fair to say. Um, the nice thing, you know, the fund is is small still mm-hmm. uh and that gives us you know as many measures would tell you that gives us the opportunity to, to to get into some stocks that maybe some of the big funds couldn't um at least wouldn't be able to within any size
0: oh that's a good point yeah because of it yeah. being you can use your size to an advantage it's not always a exactly. not always a uh, yeah exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah exactly um and so we've been able to you know and be able to hold um some smaller, you know, more volatile stocks, but mm-hmm. that's okay. We're happy to do that um, because you know, ultimately if you build the risk side of the portfolio properly, that will all work itself out. You know, if you build a well-diversified portfolio, uh, then it's okay to take on stocks with a little more volatility. If you think you have a real opportunity and an edge, like an opportunity or, or an information or investment edge when you're selecting that stock. So, you know, you do need to hold a couple of the big guys. Um, you know, emerging markets has the same sort of large stock dominance and phenomenon that we have here in the U.S. There's kind of like the big four in emerging markets. Um, and, but so you got to hold one or two of those just to kind of keep yourself you know somewhere nearby the rest of the market. When you say the big four, are you
0: talking about countries or are you talking about specific stocks?
1: Specific stocks. In emerging markets, the big four would be Alibaba, Tencent, uh-huh. Samsung, and Taiwan semiconductor.
0: So China, China, South Korea and kind of China.
1: Uh yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not <laughs> getting into a geopolitical discussion. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yes, but dominantly I mean look, all um well, at least 3 of the 4, you know, big growth stocks, right? Mm-hmm. And and Samsung's yeah. kind of an industrial with a very broad range of um stuff, but still, you know, just a really big company. So um, yes, and just like we've had here in the U.S., these big growth stocks have gotten a lot of um, attention and, and a lot of assets have into them. There's some issues among some of them now that that can be discussed. But um, but yeah, that for the last several years, those four stocks have been have been the big dominant positions uh, in the market.
0: Does what's going on in China with the recent uh, Evergrande declaring bankruptcy after the two years of struggling to meet payments, uh, and I think I saw Country Garden is next on the list that's missed a couple payments, mm-hmm. uh, does that scare you out of your, your holdings in, in those markets or do you have a longer time frame and that's just noise to you?
1: Oh, I don't, I don't think it's noise at all. Um, I don't know if it's nothing specific to Tencent or Alibaba, but for China in general, uh, I think these issues are um there there's some really serious issues there and it, particularly you know, there's going to be periods where china's markets do well but the long term in the long term the outlook for chinese equities and chinese investments is not good and the real estate issue is you know just one piece of it right um, which is really just this this a question of the, the overwhelming personal and corporate debt that the, the country has accumulated. Not so much government debt, but the corporate and personal debt is is huge. So mm, that's just really? one of the of several issues that really is, is a drag on that part of the uh, emerging market universe. There
0: are there any other things that uh, you look at when you look at China that makes you scared for the future, for their markets?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the, the, um, they conveniently, they all start with the letter D. Um, so <laughs> debt is one, we just mentioned that. Yep. Um, the biggest one, is probably is demographics. And it's really a long-term issue. And and with demographics- That one, was, one was child. A result, exactly. exactly. Yeah. As a result of the one-child policy from years ago, their demographic structure or profile is is the worst of any country of any kind of reasonable size. How, so, does, it,
0: how does theirs compare with the U.S.'s? Because, I mean, we had a huge influx during the baby boomer period that are all nearing retirement age. And I don't think that the- um, the birth rates have kept up with uh, necessarily that boom, where we almost have like a bit of a mushroom cloud distribution with the age demographics in the US.
1: We have one other huge advantage here, and that's immigration. Immigration? We fill it in from the bottom. Uh-huh. Maybe the uh-huh. last couple of years, not so much, but for, for an extended period of time, right? Young people come here mm-hmm. um, and fill in the bottom levels of our, of our demographics. So that's, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's the big advantage and, and you know, that's that China doesn't have gotcha gotcha yeah so one um, so those are the two the other two things that are um concerning about uh, china one is deflation which is which we're just we're starting to see here in the most last several months within the last year since november which is when china removed the restrictions on the COVID lockdowns and such and the conventional wisdom's like well this is great they're gonna all this consumer spending is going to be released. yeah exactly and gosh, it might it might kick off inflation again because all this more demand is suddenly brought to the market. Um, actually, it was the other way, ended up, you know, be careful what you wish for, it ended up the other way around. The, it also, you know, their their manufacturing uh, also kicked off and the consumption really wasn't there. Um, the people just weren't really spending like they were pre-pandemic or, or some years ago. And so what we're ending up seeing now is actual deflation, like pursuit, producer price index dropped Gosh, five, over 5%, close to 10% last month or two. And now the CPIs just reached into negative territory. So instead of exporting or in, exporting inflation, China has been exporting deflation. Um, mm-hmm. This makes things, it makes it more difficult to get your economy going. It's much easier to fix inflation than it is to fix deflation. So that is a, another um,
0: big challenge for them. Is that why some of, because I think I saw recently in a headline that Mexico had overtaken China as the U.S.'s yeah. top trading partner. Is that some of the, are those some of the headwinds that maybe have precipitated that change?
1: Actually, that one I think is related to velocity, which is um, deglobalization, And the, which is that, hmm. you know, as I'm sure you're aware, right, lots of companies are talking about bringing, reshoring their production, bringing their manufacturing or other production back to the U.S. or at least out of China. Um, right. A, it's not as cheap as it used to be, and B, there's some security issues there that, that have cropped up.
0: <laughs> yeah, the way they yeah. keep stealing tech.
1: <laughs> yeah, or and or the governments just told them you can't, you know, make chips over there or or, or for other um, really sensitive industries. And so mm-hmm. some you know, some these come back to the U.S., but Latin America and particularly Mexico are really are a great alternative to China. It's sort of like coming halfway back. You get mm-hmm. the uh, less expensive production that you are getting in China or had been in the past. And it's a far more secure area. It's right next door, next door to us, um, share a border with them, um, solid talent, you know, capable uh, workforce, the whole thing. So
0: nothing else, the shipping costs have got to be a lot more reasonable.
1: And the shipping costs are a lot less, right? So it just, so that's, you know, that's a lot of what we're, you know, Mexico is a big beneficiary of that. And the market and their currency are starting to, um, show that in the last, mm-hmm. uh, well, in the last two or three years, but particularly recently, they've been fairly strong.
0: Are there any other benef- uh, countries in Latin America that are benefiting from this exodus from China?
1: Well, I think, uh, um, several of them are the, um, the other one that comes to mind is, you know, it's sort of a slightly different, but Brazil is also benefiting from it. And, um, and you're seeing, you know, it's a much larger economy. So you're seeing a lot of yeah. uh, investment money flow into Brazil.
0: It's funny. I always thought of Brazil as more of a
1: developed nation. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, if you think about the the geopolitical history there, uh, yeah, yeah, they've, it's they've got a lot of issues to work out. It's
0: it's almost like Latin Germany, I think, right? With the Wag Motors. Yeah, there's, the well, there's a lot
1: of <laughs> there's a lot of political instability. Obviously, you know, you could see they went from Lula, you know, to uh, and then back to Lula, and Lula went to jail in between. I mean, these are kind of crazy things that go on. There's a fair amount of corruption, but um, the country has tremendous potential if they can get a handle on some of these things and um, and get build some stability in the region. But, I feel uh, like a
0: lot of Latin America can say the same thing. Um,
1: uh, you would be correct. Yes.
0: But you got to think that uh, like good paying jobs, like coming in there, into their areas, have got to be like the best thing for them. Like what fights, like what, the only thing that's going to stop like crime from being like the only alternative that people have to shoot, you know, to, to pursue is going to be other opportunities and education, right?
1: Yes. Uh, they're historically, the biggest challenge has been corruption. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the sort of story that has been told of Latin America in the last hundred years is that, that the one that I've always heard um, in which people could probably argue the veracity of it is that if you look at Argentina as example, in the year nineteen hundred, which is a while ago, but mm-hmm. in nineteen hundred, I believe it was the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. They had everything going for it. It has wonderful climate, oh, wow. it has fantastic uh, resources, um, a you know modern, educated population, most of whom were come from European stock for whatever that's worth. I'm just saying, it, you know, it's just very cosmopolitan. And, and and look what's happened since then. They've they've mm-hmm. whittled it all away, and it's mostly just been. Um, corruption they haven't been able to get a stable political system in there that um, could to promote that the benefits of, a, of their economy and, and get it to continue to grow somebody was always taking something off the top so that's the sad story
0: that sounds like one of the major risks when it comes to trying to invest in emerging markets so like how do you mitigate that as a portfolio manager
1: well it, it is um what's interesting though is that this is not emerging markets are not our our father's emerging markets where there was a considerable uh, amount of risk or it's just a lot riskier to invest in emerging markets mm-hmm. over um, you know, developed markets or even international markets. Uh, that has changed in the last several years, at least from a statistical or mathematical standpoint. Um, mm-hmm. It's now interesting that in the last three to five years, the if you just compare the volatility of, of developed markets versus emerging, they're basically on par now. Even. Really? Yeah, they are. Um, and is that, a,
0: is that a warning sign for the developed nations or is that well, it's,
1: <laughs> it's a, I think it's a combination of two things. And part of it is, part of it is that the emerging markets um, have grown considerably in the last you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And so now you have a whole host of you know a lot of these countries have been lifted out of poverty. And um, while they're not developed, but countries certainly far more stable than they were before. You have mm-hmm. a wide diversity of them across the world. You, you certainly is a concentration in Northeast Asia, we have Korea, we have China, we have Taiwan. Um, and um, those are some of the bigger players in the space, but we also have Indonesia. We have um, Turkey, you have South Africa, you have countries, you know, these are uh, countries in different parts of the world and they have some of their own issues, but mm-hmm. um, but they tend to help with within the, Perspective of just looking at emerging markets, they tend to diversify each other away. So, mm-hmm. you know, Turkey's having all sorts of inflation problems, but that's okay. Uh, you know, so they're having one issue; it's not going to drag all of emerging markets down. Right,
0: um, right, right.
1: So there's a, there's a great diversification. Effect.
0: They're almost a lot more insular from each other, whereas the, yeah. the global markets seem to be a lot more in step.
1: What's interesting is if you look on the other side, we're saying, well, developed and emerging have the same risk level on the developed side. <laughs> it's become almost like the, the U.S. is two thirds of the developed market. Um, yeah. And so right, sixty-six percent of the market cap, not GDP-wise, that's different. But the in the equity markets, it's two thirds of the market cap of the developed world is U.S. And so when something goes, you know, a little wrong in the U.S., like we had in March when we had the regional bank crisis, right, um, Silicon Valley Bank and all that, um, it creates a lot of volatility on a relative basis. It's <laughs> just yeah. one big. This one big portion of the equity market if it starts to get a little rocky and rolly it makes the whole all of developed markets fairly um, volatile so on one hand you've got emerging markets where the diversification and everything is pulling the risk down and into something there's there's this concentration risk on the developed side that is um is actually bringing developed market risk up so you know you could cut developed markets in a different way if you want to to sort of mitigate that but when you just look at like a um you know some sort of benchmark or index that someone might invest in through an etf that's mm-hmm. the way it is right it's going to be two-thirds us Bang, make a good point there <laughs>
0: yeah i never thought about how how the you like with the concentration of everything in the us yeah one little thing happens in the us and then suddenly has catastrophic consequences everywhere
1: well and, and pile onto that our our mainstream benchmark in the us the s p 500 is i've forgive me if I don't know the number off the top of my head of what percentage of that is in seven stocks, all mm-hmm. of which are in basically the same industry. Yeah. 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 Tech so, is... Uh, right. Yeah. So you get a rise in interest rates like we did last year and those stocks are down considerably and, and you, know, you get this huge downdraft to that market. And again, it's two thirds of the developed world. So
0: is, yeah. is there a reason why they don't rebalance those or is that weighted based off of the weighting of the market caps of the companies that
1: it's weighted based on the market cap of the companies. Always has been, and, and yeah. uh, um, Nasdaq just did a reweighting um, earlier this summer and did move things around a, a little bit mm-hmm. um, based on a protocol that they have, which isn't worth getting into. But but still, you know, S and P five hundred is still. I'm going to guess twenty to twenty five percent. Those seven stocks. It changes all the time, but it's somewhere. That
0: seems like happen. a reasonable guess. Yeah. <laughs> S-P-U-L-L-E-N at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address.
1: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit Parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
0: Okay. Uh, so when you're looking at emerging markets then, like how do you like what do you look for? What do you want to see when you're choosing, let's just say a country to, to go look for opportunities? Like what are things that'll scare you away from the country and what are things that'll say, I want to invest in you?
1: Well, um, just to just to be clear, for the most part, we are bottoms up investors. So I know we've we've had a a discussion on China and we are some a little bit underweight China, somewhat underweight China um, for some of those reasons. But ultimately, the country weights in our portfolio are just a function of the number of interesting or attractive stocks we find in that country that we want to invest in. So it's really just bottoms up.
0: So you don't look necessarily a country. You look at it based off of the individual opportunities in each country.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, The country will weigh into the risk management part. We don't want to get, we don't want our country over and underweights to get too extreme. We'll let them, we'll let them move around a bit, but we don't want them to get too large um, because, you know, there can be political events that, that weigh into these, the performance of these markets. And I am not a political expert. So um, so you know, I can find some good companies to invest in, in different countries, but I don't know if China's going to invade Taiwan. So, right, um, right, right. So anyways, my point being, so that's generally how we do that. Um, per the other part of our discussion, you know, we have a models, a set of models that we use to try and select stocks in each of these different countries. Um, and then we pull those all together into this, into the, the second level of this, which is make sure that we have this well-diversified portfolio. Diversified by, you know, what the, like we said, ge- geography, but also industry, and also the different investing styles that that drive the market, whether growth and value, mm-hmm. large and small. Um, you know the influence of things like interest rates and stuff like that. Um, to just to try and not to try and guess on these, but just to make sure that we're you know reasonably well balanced um, towards the influence of these in, these factors mm-hmm. that move the market around, so that the performance comes from the stocks that we pick and not from getting, you know, guessing, uh, right on, on some sort of, you know, global macroeconomic trend.
0: <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, I'm guessing you guys are not experts when it comes to global politics, but you do have an expertise when it comes to identifying, uh, potential stocks to invest in. Yes. That's, so that's, lean into your strengths and mitigate the other risks. It, that's exactly it. I like that. Um, have you ever had to deal with, um, like nationalization, that, that's always been one of the things that scared me away from investing in certain markets. Like uh, Venezuela is definitely one where I think I've seen that happen multiple times in the past where the country decides, hey, all these foreign assets are now ours.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and that, that generally only happens in a lot of the really smaller sort of frontier like um, markets, which we don't have positions in now.
0: Um, well, yeah, because it's got to be like spiting your nose or cutting off your nose to spite the face kind of thing, right? You nationalize every foreign investment, and well, you're probably not going to get a whole lot more foreign investments going forward.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't, uh, in my experience in this market, it, it really hasn't been a big of an, of an issue. But um, you, know, we were talking about China, and it's kind of becoming an issue there. We don't, we specifically avoid any of the state-owned enterprises in China because mm-hmm. you know, our perspective is that the models we've built aren't going to work on a, on a state owned company like that. Right. And we will actually kind of t- sometimes, you know, state owned companies in other parts of the world will crop up now and then. And we sort of cast a wary eye on those as well. Um, China though is starting to um, get involved. This is as yet one more thing going on with China. Um, they're starting to get involved more at the government's getting more actively involved in the governance and a lot of their largest companies. They are putting, um, political appointees onto the boards uh, of even some of the biggest companies like Tencent or Alibaba. And when that happens, those, those political appointees tend to have an undue influence on those companies. And the way they're influencing them is you probably heard you know things come out of China talking about, you know, we want growth that benefits everyone, not just um, certain people. Uh, You know, there's a term and forgive me if I can't pull it off the top of my head that has been used by Xi Jinping about um, sort of just how China benefits all. Well, Mm -hmm. um, that sounds great and I hope that works out, but it's really not good for shareholders um, (laughs) or for for (laughs) our investors. So I do hope that works out for everybody, but um, it's not going to work out for us. So we have to stay away from those kinds of situations. Um, and, and would rather invest in the companies that are independent of state influence. The whole,
0: I, I think I've talked about this multiple times, but the whole thing with Jack Ma and uh, the way China squashed the anti-PO is exactly like, I haven't invested in a China stock since then. Right,
1: exactly. I mean, that's just a perfect example of it.
0: Yeah. Uh, what about India, though? India is one that looks to me like it's been on the uh, the up and up as far as Potentially like stepping in to challenge China. Do you think they have the potential to do that or do they have something else that they got to figure out first before they can become a, the, the economic superpower in the, in the East?
1: Um, yeah, potentially, yes. Uh, the, my, it, it, like, for example, the very first thing is their demographic profile is far superior to China's. They have, uh, mm-hmm. uh, they have, a you know, I think you probably heard they recently overtook China in population, right? So they're now the largest country in the world by population.
0: Oh, really? Yes. I, I'd heard that China may be fudging some numbers in the most recent census. Oh, <laughs> I didn't hear it was official.
1: Yeah. And, and to, at the risk of making this a bash on China session, you know, uh, China actually also experienced the first decline in population recently. Mm-hmm. So, so from that perspective, um, that's a good benefit. There is, a, however, um, for India, a couple of things that they're going to have to solve. Um, first of all, is they obviously have just widespread poverty across the country. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, lots of these people, but they're economic, have to find a more you know, a- economic um, avenues for these people to contribute to the broader economy in some way. And that's difficult. Um, right. They have the biggest democracy in the world. And that's a, in the long term. That's a great asset to have. Um, people mm-hmm. may question the current status of that democracy, but it is still the largest democracy in the world. But there is a tremendous bureaucracy there that really makes it hard <sighs> to get anything done.
0: And, yes.
1: uh, and so that was, you know, th- those are the kind of issues that they have to resolve, but the potential is there, the, you know, they're well-located. Um, they, like I said, the demographics are great. Uh, you know, it, a considerable portion of the is English speaking for better or for worse. So they, they kind of have to, yeah. I think
0: they speak like 27 different regional languages in the country. Exactly. <laughs> and
1: the British heritage there, obviously, yeah. um, you know, um, brings with it some baggage as well, but Brings with it that light heritage of, of English speaking, so um, yeah. So there, the, the potential is there for India, and um, uh, we've held only a handful of country, uh, uh, names in that area, mostly larger um, stocks. Uh, but um, you know, Infosys, um, there's a there's a, a bank that we own there that um, one of the largest banks in India. So a um, couple situations there because I think it is it is a worthwhile market to invest in.
0: It seems like India put a lot of focus on trying to compete on the uh, in the educational front too. Like they spend a lot of time trying to educate their citizens. Uh, something that I think we see Vietnam doing a lot of, and Vietnam's another one that I've had my eye on for quite some time
1: now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, some similar situations there, right? And and a great way to try and solve the the poverty and population issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and then just the the focus on the infrastructure. Yeah. Because you got to have a way to ship all that stuff. You want to get companies in there to try to you know start making some money for your country. You got to have a way for them to get their product out. Yes, and that all starts with a good infrastructure and having an educated workforce that can do the work.
1: Unfortunately for India, like geographically, just the way the country is laid out, um, there's obviously you know there's the big river basin, the Ganges River basin, which you know dumps in towards Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, look, it's surrounded by some excellent ports. So, oh yeah. As long as they can get the goods to the ocean, um, they're in a good, great situation to uh, to be able to, you know, ship those other seas, other parts around the world.
0: Yeah, as long as they can make it through the South China Sea. (laughs) That's right. Yeah,
1: that's true. (laughs) Yeah, or the Straits of Malacca, right? Everything has to go through that little narrow spot, and if the pirates don't steal anything, then you're, you're probably good to go.
0: Are there any other emerging markets that are uh, really caught your eye, or that you think have some great potential going forward in the next, like five, ten years?
1: Well, so we have the real things that we've been focusing on is slowly but surely is moving away from the um, the northwest Asia concentration. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've talked about China um, and Korea and Taiwan. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with these countries. Um, it's just. It's just it's just kind of valuation, right? On a yeah. relative basis, they're very tech-heavy, or particularly Taiwan is very tech-heavy. Korea has a more diversified economy, but it's mostly like large cables. Um, so we've been trying to focus on sort of the countries away from those big three. Uh, so Latin America, we talked about a lot. So we, we have overweights in, in Latin American, a couple of different Latin American countries, um, Turkey, South, South Africa. There, yeah. As I say, you only briefly
0: touched on Africa. I was curious if there are any, because I think I heard Congo as being one of the. Um...
1: So that's a little too rush for for, mm. for us. Okay, okay. So um, the only the only African country we invest in is South Africa mm-hmm. currently. So um, we have a uh, two positions there, I believe. So that just to South Africa, but uh, so those are the interesting ones. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, Turkey, uh, Indonesia, and Philippines as well. So those are um, a lot of the uh, the areas that we've been that we've been focusing on and trying there are more traditional types of emerging markets, um, somewhat more commodity focused. Mm-hmm. So um, they, you know, and thus, because um, the value generated by commodity companies has declined so much in the last couple of decades, um, these, they're a relatively small part of the uh, relatively smart, small part of the emerging market universe. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's certainly like, you know, about, less than maybe around a third, maybe 40% at most, I mean, the rest of the two thirds of it is still, um, you know, China, Korea, Taiwan, et cetera.
0: Right, right, right. Okay. All right. Uh, so how do people invest in emerging markets if they want to actually go and put their dollars into it? Like do they, is the finding a fund, like the the ones that you guys manage over at Shelton funds, like basically the only option that everyday retail has, or are there other things that they can do if they want to like buy a specific stock?
1: Um, so there are, um, if people want to invest in the individual equities, it is uh, possible. There's a lot of ADRs out there for emerging markets. Um, I want to say 200 to 250. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them don't don't have a lot of liquidity, so some of them uh, only trade by reservation. But um, as the joke <laughs> kind of goes, but yes, there.
0: reserve your spot and hope it comes to you.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, or pay, or you know, pay somebody, or what is it just? get your nose ripped off right. trying to uh, buy it. Yeah, yeah. But there, there are, there are, I think there are like 200, 250 ADRs in, in the emerging market space. Um, and uh, of which I think probably 100 or so have some decent liquidity. So there's one option. The other option, obviously, there's a lot of you know, ETFs. There's a ton of ETFs out there that trade all sorts of different flavors of emerging markets. Mm-hmm. Um, you could do those as well. You know, And there's actually, I mean, what I've noticed, there's a lot of, emerging market ex-China. There's several of those. So if you don't want, if you really buy into the uh, negative China thesis, you can buy these you know, ETFs and leave China out, mm-hmm. right? And get the rest of it. So that's a nice option. Also, of course, individual com- people want to buy as individual company. But I would encourage investors to look at active funds in the space. Um, there, uh, as mentioned before, it, it is a relatively neglected part of the world. I mean, there's there's a lot of smart investors who know what they're doing in that area, but um, but it is um, it is underfollowed, and it's the type. It's exactly the type of environment where uh, a solid active manager can really add value, and generally will outperform a lot of these indices.
0: What are they doing that's different than what the everyday investor is doing?
1: Well, it depends on the different methods, but. Some of them, um, some firms are on the ground in these countries. Um, you know, the, the managers and the analysts are flying out there all the time, mm-hmm. um, and you're getting a real feel for the the economy and these individual companies and how well they're doing. Maybe cutting through a lot of the uh, propaganda that there might be coming out, mm-hmm. or getting real details, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of, of come. A lot of firms out there that um, Matthews Asia was one that I remember still around, of course. Um very good at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, of course, Templeton, which uh, has you know, different over the years now, but Templeton got was very famous for, for doing that. Um, there's also now you know, in the world that kind of where I live in now, the data available for all these companies is a lot better. So um, we're able to apply a lot of the quantitative methods that we have in other parts of the world to emerging markets. Also, ah, okay, and, and, and yeah. you have some success. So it was a lot harder before the the data was not very available and was kind of questionable in quality. That is less that is less true nowadays. Does that mean that the
0: margins have also shrunk now that the data becomes more available?
1: Um, a little, but um, you know, there's it, it kind of been this balance between the availability of the data mm-hmm. and how effective your methods or models might be, and the two kind of balance each other out. So it, there's a it, I say the data is more available, but it is kind of a spectrum. Like some areas in some countries, the data is fantastic. It's developed market quality. All right, right. Um, as you, But then, of course, it gets worse as you go down the cap spectrum. You get to smaller companies. But in those smaller, less followed companies or smaller or, or less followed countries, um, it is easier to get an edge mm, with, with yes. the, the data that you have that's available. And I found that balance to to hold true within emerging market investing.
0: Any uh, any literature or resources do you like to point people to if they want to learn more about like what you do and um, they want to like just brush up and and just learn more about how to do this?
1: Well, we'll be putting out some um, white papers and such at Shelton Funds and Shelton Capital Management about emerging markets. Um, we're developing some of that currently um, as the fund gets uh, bigger and gets a little more uh, interest, and um, so that's a, a great source. Um, but you know. Uh, there's a lot to be learned from reading about some of these. Um, there are a handful out there of, of great emerging market investors. I named a couple of them. There's others. I you'll have to forgive me, but I, I can't pull them off the top of my head. <laughs> and, and reading about you know what they've done and how they've sorted their way through some of these um, uh, really sort of obscure markets, the kind of opaque markets, um, is fairly interesting. And you can see where the advantage to active management can really uh, come through for a lot of these markets and investing in these markets.
0: Uh, we've only mentioned the funds, but I don't think we've actually, uh, if you want to give the tickers, just that way people can go look them up if they want to. I'll make sure I put those in the episode description too if people want to be able to, to dig them up. Sure, yes.
1: The, the Shelton's Emerging Market Fund is um, it's EMSQX. Uh, EMSQX, that's right. So mm-hmm. it's the Shelton Emerging Markets Fund. And that's our flagship um, EM fund. We have an international fund as well, which is the Shelton International Select Fund which some of our emerging market positions are in for, you know, it represents about 15% of the international market. So we have some of those in there and the ticker on that one is SISEX.
0: S I S E X. And you manage both of these. I do. How much of your data is, uh, is taken up by doing portfolio work?
1: Um, you know, um, I have two, uh, analysts that work for me, uh, or actually it's an analyst and a portfolio manager and they're fantastic. Do a great job. So, um, we're able to you know, leverage our abilities um, through technology. And you know, a lot of the things that we need to to the data we need to collect and how we need to analyze it, we've automated as much as we can so that we can then kind of look at the what comes out of there, looks at the results, and it really simplifies the, the job for us and helps us direct our real concentrated efforts where it's necessary and where it can really make the biggest difference.
0: I've always wondered like how much time you guys actually spend like tweaking the portfolio and how much of your time is actually probably spent doing like just the administrative work that probably have a lot of filing and compliance things that you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis that I'm guessing takes up the majority of
1: your time. Well, I'll I'll give you a little bit of a clue. I mean we, we have a lot of other help and resources that help us do a lot of that mm-hmm. compliance and, and uh back office work, which is great. Um we try to rebalance the portfolios um like sort of once at a time we don't we're not trading every day we're not changing positions every day Mm -hmm. kind of accumulate our analysis over time and and it's we also um it's also kind of comes and goes with the earnings reports that come out from these companies so those come in waves i think you're familiar here in the u.s have earning season you know once a quarter right and um but in in international emerging markets it's it's also a little bit quarterly, but mostly semi-annually. You have two reports a year. Mm-hmm. And so um, we tend to make sure the portfolio is well-positioned going into when that season begins, which it's actually just wrapping up right now. So it would have been um, earlier this summer. And we sit and watch all the data come in from all these earnings reports and, and how it affects our portfolio. And then at the end of it, we'll rebalance the portfolio again with all this new information. And usually, you know, maybe once or twice we'll make some adjustments in between. Mm-hmm. So. Um, So that, and then while we're not trading and rebalancing, well, that's when we're looking at our models and looking at our methods and seeing, you know, how are they working? Can we improve them? Um, Can we find new data? Can we develop some new methods uh, of selecting stocks in these parts of the world?
0: I love it. Uh, Derek, this has been fascinating. You have anything else that you'd like to just leave the listeners with before we wrap this up?
1: No, Kyle, it's been great. I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about um, this part of the world. I think it's a really exciting, Time for emerging markets, and it's a really I think it's a really good time to get into emerging market investing. Um, one thing I would say about it is that you know emerging markets have underperformed developed and, and particularly the U.S. for, gosh, twelve or so years now. Oh, it's been and that long. Yeah, it's been it's well you know twenty the last year or so it's been a bit mixed, mm-hmm. but before then it was a good ten to twelve year streak of underperformance. I mean, the SM, it sends something along the lines of the S&P basically tripled over that time period and emerging markets went nowhere. Right. So it, it's a great time to get in from from just from a what you might call a beta perspective, from just getting that part of um, the investable universe into your portfolio. And uh, the key part of this that will help make emerging markets happen is going to be the dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the last time the emerging markets had a really strong run of performance was the early aughts, and the dollar was weak that whole time period. Mm-hmm. Dollar has been strong since then, hence emerging markets have um, underperformed. It's not the only reason, but it, it's an important one. And we're at a point now where the dollar might have peaked back in October, and November. And if you think about what's going on with interest rates around the world, you know our Fed is starting to slow down its rate of rate hikes. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, in the rest of the world, the rates are still going up. Um, Europe is behind (laughs) us they're probably nine to 12 months behind us in the rate cycle. And if you've seen in Japan, they're starting to let the interest rates actually rise a little bit. So that's draw money out of, you know, from the the fixed income market, which, you know, affects the dollar a lot. It's going to be drawing money out of the dollar and into these other currencies. So we could see some weakness going forward. And if that's the case, emerging markets, that could be the catalyst that really makes emerging markets um, perform. And it could perform for, you know, the next five to 10 years. Oh, wow.
0: Uh, yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, we're going to have to bring you back, Derek. I feel like we could probably spend just an hour talking about just pick a market and just <laughs> rap about that. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's a fascinating part. Of it. There's, there's a lot of fascinating parts of the investing world right now. Oh,
0: I know, right? Uh, every day you learn something new. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately though, we have come to the end of our time with Derek, but as we mentioned earlier, there is plenty more you can see at his website, go to sheltonfunds.com. If you want to learn more about the different funds that Derek manages, or just learn more about him. Uh, they do have some blogs that they post on there. It looks like on a monthly basis and check back for some of those white papers that he mentioned. If you also enjoyed this episode and now wondering what to do with the rest of your life, uh, go check out the guest directory, see all the other amazing people we've had the pleasure of speaking with. All those links will be in the episode description. We'll be back soon with another exciting episode. But until then, smash that five-star rating like it's a pumpkin. You're Billy Corgan, and take care.
1: Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.